friends. Peace be to you. At this point in the unfolding of the divine mysteries and Christian doctrine, we come to some very important words in the creed, namely that our blessed Lord was born of the Virgin Mary. We will try to give, first of all, some evidence for this. Secondly, show how it was necessary in the present plan of the world's redemption. First of all, the evidence for it, that our Lord was born of the Virgin Mary. In order to understand proofs, we must realize that the Gospels were not first. They were tradition. Every member in the early church, that is to say, after Pentecost and until the Gospels were written, every member of the church already knew about the miracle of the loaves and fishes, about the resurrection, and about the virgin birth. It's something like, for example, the knowledge that we have that World War I began in 1914. We read that in the book. The fact that we read it in the book does not create the belief in us, does it? It merely confirms what we already know. So too the gospel set down in a more systematic way that which was already believed. Just suppose that you lived during the first 25 years of the church after Pentecost. How would you have answered the question? How can I know what I am to believe? You could not say, I will look in the Bible. There was no New Testament Bible then. You would have to believe what the church was teaching in those days. Never once, for example, did our Lord tell the witnesses of his life to write. He wrote only once in his life, and that was in the sands. But he did tell his apostles to preach in his name. Be witnesses to him until the ends of the earth. Hence those that take this or that text out of the gospel to prove something are very often isolating it from the historical atmosphere in which it arose and from the word of mouth which passed on Christ's truth. When finally the Gospels were written, they recorded a tradition. They did not create it. It was already there. After a while, men had decided to put in writing this tradition. And that explains the beginning of the Gospel of St. Luke. You remember how he begins? That thou mayest know the verity of these words in which thou hast been instructed. See, he assumes that people already had been instructed. The Gospels did not start the church. The church started the Gospel. The church did not come out of the Gospels. It was the Gospels that came out of the church. The church preceded the New Testament 
not the New Testament, the church. Men did not believe in the resurrection because the gospel said there was a resurrection. The gospel writers wrote down the story of the crucifixion, for example, and the resurrection because they believed it. Now in like manner, the church did not come to believe in the virgin birth because the gospels tell us there is a virgin birth. It was because the living word of God in his mystical body, the church already believed it. And they set it down in the gospels. If the apostles who lived with our Lord, who heard him speak in the open hills and in the temple, if the apostles did not teach the virgin birth, no one else would have taught it. No one else would have written it. It was too unusual an idea for men to make up. It would have been ordinarily too difficult for acceptance if it had not come from Christ himself. Now the one man who might be inclined to doubt the virgin birth on natural grounds was the man who writes it in his gospel, namely St. Luke. I say on natural grounds because Luke was a physician. And yet it's the medical doctor who sets down the virgin birth and tells us most about it. Many of the teachings of our Lord were denied by heretics because there was a protest against Christ in the church from the very beginning. Now these heretics denied some of his doctrines, but there was one teaching that no early heretic denied, and that is that our Lord was born of a virgin. One would think that would be the very first doctrine to be attacked. But the virgin birth was accepted both by heretics and by believers alike. It would have been rather silly to try to convince anyone of the virgin birth if he did not already believe in the divinity of Christ. And that is why probably Mary did not speak of it herself until after the resurrection. And she told the apostles and others although certainly Joseph, Elizabeth, and probably John the Baptist already knew of it. But of course, our Lord himself all the time need not say that. Now we come to an objection that is often urged. Does not the gospel say that our blessed Lord had brothers? If he had brothers, and Mary had other children. If Mary had other children, then she was not always the virgin. Now we will try to give some answer to that. I stand in the pulpit very often, and I begin my sermon by saying, My dear brethren, Does that mean that everyone in the congregation and I had exactly the same mother? Or is it just a form of speech? 
Now that wide use of the word brethren that we have in our modern language was used also in a very wide sense by scriptures. In the scriptures, the word brother means a relative, sometimes a friend. Let us take, for example, Abraham and Lot. Abraham calls Lot his brother. As we read in the book of Genesis, Pray let us have no strife between us two, between my shepherds and thine. For we are brethren. Now Lot was not a brother of Abraham. He was a nephew. But that's the way the scripture speaks of friends and relatives. Thirdly, there are several indeed who are mentioned as brothers of Christ, such as James. But they are indicated elsewhere as the sons of another Mary. I mean elsewhere in scripture. Namely Mary, the sister of the mother of our Lord, and the wife of Cleophas. Then again, James, who is particularly mentioned as the brother of our Lord, as for example by St. Paul, who said, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. But this James is regularly named in the enumeration of the apostles as the son of another father, namely Alphaeus. And you'll find that recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Furthermore, the so-called brethren of our Lord are nowhere mentioned in the scripture as the sons and the daughters of Joseph and Mary. Nowhere in scripture is it said that Joseph had begotten brothers and sisters of Jesus, as nowhere does it say that Mary had other children besides her divine son. Now we come to some rather unusual proofs of the virgin birth from sacred scripture. I say unusual because I mean apart from the very obvious references that there are in St. Luke. Two of these proofs we're going to draw from the Gospel of St. John and also from the writings of St. Paul. First of all, St. John. St. John assumes the virgin birth. We say this because throughout the Gospel of St. John there is the assumption of a double birth. We are first of all born of our parents. And then we are born of God. The waters of the Holy Spirit in baptism. Remember, that is what our Lord meant when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again. First birth he took from his mother and the flesh, and the second is the birth of the Spirit. Now what makes us Christians is not being born of our parents, but being born of God through baptism. Now notice when St. John speaks of this second birth, namely our birth of God, 
he practically assumes the virgin birth. Because he said in the beginning of his gospel that our Lord gave to us, quote, the power to become the sons of God. And he tells us that this happens by a birth. But he immediately says this is not a human birth. And then he goes on to enumerate the reasons why it's not a human birth. He said, it is neither of blood nor of sex, nor of the human will, but solely by the power of God. Now this statement of John certainly assumed a Christian and common understanding of the virgin birth. What is blood? What is sex? What is the human will? The human birth. All of these elements are eliminated in the story of the birth of our Lord. The Blessed Mother says that she is a virgin, that she knows not man. And God says that the power of God will overshadow her. You get the same elements you see in the Gospel of St. John that you get in the Gospel of St. Luke. How could any Christian in those days have understood this spiritual kind of a birth unless they understood the virgin birth? Therefore, it already happened. No one who at the end of the first century read the beginning of the Gospel of St. John was amazed that St. John should have spoken of a new generation without sex. They were not amazed because at this time the whole Christian world knew that this is how Christianity came into being. The virgin birth, in other words, is God's idea, not man's. No one would ever have thought of it if it had not happened. Now we come to another proof from the Gospel of St. Not the Gospel, rather the Epistles of St. Paul. St. Paul also assumes the virgin birth. Now, as you know, the epistles were originally written in Greek. When St. Paul speaks of the birth of our Lord, he uses in Greek a very peculiar expression. Let us take, for example, St. Paul's message to the Galatians. Then God sent out his Son on a mission to us. He took birth. Notice that. He took birth from a woman. Took birth as a subject of the law to make us sons by adoption. Whenever St. Paul describes the birth of our Lord, he never uses the ordinary word to describe birth. In other words, he never uses the word to describe a human birth, which is the result of a conjunction of man and woman. The word that is always used in every other New Testament passage. Now, the common word in Greek is some form of the Greek word, genau, 
G-E-N-N-A-O. That means a birth such as you have and I have. But St. Paul, in four instances, speaks of the temporal beginnings of our Lord. Remember, the person of our Lord was eternal. It was only his human nature that had a beginning. Now, in the four instances where St. Paul touches on the temporal beginnings of our Lord, as a man, in those four instances, St. Paul uses an entirely different Greek word because it was not the ordinary kind of birth. He used some form of the word ginomai, G-I-N-O-M-A-I. Never once does he employ that other word which means common ordinary birth, such as all mortals have. He never uses that to describe the birth of our Lord. He uses always a word which means like to come into existence or to become. One very interesting proof of this is in a passage in the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 23, 24, and 29. In that epistle, St. Paul uses the word to be born. That is to say, in the ordinary way, three times. He uses it to describe the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Jacob. But when he comes to the birth of our Lord, he refuses to use that word. He uses another word, a form of the verb ginomai, because the birth of our Lord was a virgin. You will find in the New Testament 33 times some description of the birth of a child. And in every single instance, the New Testament uses the word genau, the ordinary birth like yours and mine. But that word is never used once concerning the birth of our Lord. Our Lord as a person had an eternal. Inasmuch as he assumed human nature, he had a temporal birth, a beginning. Yes, the beginning came from the virgin. See, the reason of the difference is this. Our Lord was born into the human family, into the human race. He was not born of it. God formed Adam, the first man, without the seed of a man. So why should we shrink from the thought that the new Adam would also be formed without the seed of a man? As Adam was made of the earth into which God breathed a living soul, so the body of Christ was formed in the flesh of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And so firmly rooted was the virgin birth in Christian tradition that none of the early apologists ever had to defend the virgin birth. It was believed in even by heretics, as we say just as much as the crucifixion was, because it stood on exactly the same footing as an historical fact. Here's another interesting point. 
There are two birth stories in the gospel. The birth of our Lord and the birth of John the Baptist. But notice the different stress. The gospel story of John the Baptist centers on the father, Zachary. The gospel story of the birth of Jesus centers on the mother. Why does it center on the mother? Again, because of the virgin birth. Now you may ask, well, why is there a virgin birth? Could our blessed Lord have come to this earth in any other way? Oh, certainly. Our Lord really need not have been born at all. But given the present order of things, why is there a virgin birth? Well, now here we come to something that is a little difficult to understand, and we hope that we can, that we can make it clear. The reason we believe in a virgin birth and the reason in the present order our Lord chose that was first of all, he wanted someone very good to bring him into this world. No great triumphant leader makes his entrance into the city over dust-covered roads when he could come on a flower-strewn avenue. Had infinite purity chosen any other port of entrance into humanity but that of human purity, it would have created a tremendous difficulty for us. Namely, how could he be sinless if he was born of a sin-laden humanity? If a brush dipped in black becomes black, and if a cloth takes on the color of the dye, would not he in the eyes of the world have partaken of the guilt in which all humanity shared? If he came to this earth through the wheat field of moral weakness, he certainly would have some chaff hanging on to the garment of his human nature. In other words, our problem is this. How could God become man and yet be a sinless man? First of all, he had to be man. He had to be like us. In order that he might be involved in some way in our humanity, in order that he might take upon himself our sins. But at the same time, Though our blessed Lord had to be a perfect man, nevertheless he could not be a sinful man. He had to be a sinless man. He had in some way to be outside of that terrible current of sin that has passed on and infected all humanity. You see the problem? He had to be a man. He had to be different from all other men in the sense that he had to be our redeemer and sinless in the new Adam. The problem is very much like that of a ship. Imagine a ship sailing on a sea that's very dirty and foul. It wishes to pass to another sea or lake immediately nearby where the waters are crystal clear and pure. Now evidently there has to be some break between the foul waters and the clear waters. Otherwise they would merge. So what happens? There is often a lock built. So a ship sails along 
those foul waters then comes into the lock where the foul waters are completely separated from it. And then the ship is finally lifted into the clear waters. So our blessed Lord in some way had to be related to the sinful humanity that went on before, related inasmuch as he would be a man, but because he would be sinful. And at the same time, he had to be sinless so that he himself would not need redemption. It would be our redeemer. Now that lock that lifted our blessed Lord out of that sinful current of humanity and made him the sinless man, the new head of the human race, was the And then think of the beautiful, beautiful application it has for all of us. The Blessed Mother is the inspiration of everything. The mother is the protectress of the Virgin, and the Virgin is the inspiration of motherhood. Without mothers, there would be no virgins in the next generation. Without the virgins, mothers would forget that sublime ideal lives beyond the earth. How often, for example, when you visit someone, you hear it said, oh, that child looks exactly like the father. Well, if we had looked at our blessed Lord, we would have said, he looks exactly like his mother. He got something from his father's side, namely divinity. But he also got something his mother's side, namely a sinless humanity. That's why we love Mary. Hail.